0: Thank you, Simon. If you haven't already, be sure and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. John Morant is, he's been in the news this week. Um, If you haven't heard of him, he's an NBA all-star guard from the Memphis Grizzlies. And he played his college ball at Murray State here in Kentucky. He's a racer. Uh, and he really is a special basketball player. He's an incredible, incredible ball player. Um, but unfortunately, he's, he's been in some trouble recently. Uh, I was mentioning our presence on social media earlier. Well, he's had some presence on social media in the last several weeks. Uh, but in videos that have surfaced on social media, he's been carrying a gun. Um, And so, he's gotten into some pretty serious trouble because of that. The first time happened back in March, uh, and he was suspended for eight games uh, because of that. And then the second time happened just this past Saturday, a week ago. And then on Sunday, he was suspended uh, from all team activities from the Memphis Grizzlies. Now, if you watch any sports or, and of course, the NBA finals have been happening, and so it's hard to not kind of pay attention a little bit, or you listen to any sports talk, uh, then you've heard people talking about the Ja Morant situation this week, and everybody has an opinion. Everybody kind of has an opinion about how Ja should respond and how the NBA should respond. Um, But here's kind of the question I want to think about this morning. When someone has messed up big time for a second time in a short amount of time, How do you apologize? How do you apologize? What do you say? Well, if you've been paying attention to his story, Ja decided to post a statement on social media this week, uh, and it went like this. He said, I know I've disappointed a lot of people who have supported me. This is a journey. I recognize there's much more work to do. My words may not mean much right now, but I take full responsibility for my actions and I'm committed to continuing to work on myself. Now, did he say enough? Was he sincere? Did someone in the Memphis Grizzlies organization write that for him? You don't know, right? It's hard to tell just from a, someone's post on an Instagram feed. You know, it kind of makes me think of the husband who was trying to apologize to his wife, and so he says, I'm sorry. And she responds by saying, you certainly are. Now, is there something you want to say to me? She's still waiting for an apology, and he thinks he's already apologized. Well, one of my favorite uh, sports personalities to listen to on occasion is a guy named Shannon Sharp. He was a Hall of Fame tight end. Uh, In the NFL, he's on a talk show called Undisputed. Uh, I find him very entertaining. And every once in a while, he drops a truth bomb. He calls it wisdom he learned from his grandmother. And so I was listening to him this week uh, and listening to him talk about the Ja Morant situation. And he was saying many things about it, but then he shared some wisdom from his grandmother. He said that his grandma taught him that the best apology is changed behavior. And when I heard him say that, I thought, that'll preach. That's some wisdom. The best apology is changed behavior. That's good. You know, the biblical word for changed behavior is repentance. And so, here's how I want to put that same message into the context of my lesson today. All of us, you, me, John Morant, all of us need to be given an opportunity to repent. All right, we're in Acts chapter 11. Um, If you haven't... Turn there already. Open it up because we've got a Bible study happening here today. And uh, as you heard it being read by Simon um, earlier, you probably realized, hey, I've, I've heard this before, recently, in fact, um, and that means you've been paying attention, um, and that's good. But what, So what's happened here, just to give you a little bit of context, is that news of what had happened in chapter 10 in Caesarea has made it back to Jerusalem the cats out of the bag so to speak the unclean impure uncircumcised gentiles have also received the word of god that's verse 1 well how will the church respond to this how how will the church respond to this news Let's pick up in verse 2. When Peter goes up to Jerusalem, here's the response. We're told that the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you, I kind of feel like a finger's being pointed when I read that. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. That's the response. Now, let me ask you a personal question. How do you deal with criticism? Do you handle criticism well? I don't handle criticism very well. Do you? I mean, is anybody in here handle criticism well? You know, there's a great book on marriage called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. Uh, Perhaps you've seen it. It's it's by Dr. John Gottman. It's been out for a number of years. Uh, He was a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington. Uh, And the results of kind of his breakthrough study of 2,000 married couples over two decades are found in this book. He claims, uh, with all of his research, to have the ability to, up to 94% accuracy, predict if a marriage will succeed or fail. Uh, And kind of what he boils it down to in his book are what he calls these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there are these four disastrous ways of interacting with one another that sabotage your marriage. Now, these ways are definitely relevant for a marriage, but they're also true of any relationship. Not only will they sabotage a marriage, but they'll sabotage just about any relationship. And the first horseman is criticism. It's criticism. Criticism will sabotage your relationship. Now, listen to the way he defines criticism. He says, Criticism is when you attack someone's person or character, usually with blame. It's when you attack someone's person or character usually with blame, and I share that with you because I think that's what's happening here in verse 2. This group, part of this church in Jerusalem, they criticize Peter. This group of believers now, they're not Jewish Pharisees, they're Jewish believers. This group of believers in Jesus criticized Peter. They attack his person for going into the house of a Gentile and eating with them. What were you thinking, Peter? What's wrong with you, Peter? What are you up to, Peter? What's your agenda here, Peter? Now, who were these people? That's Luke refers to as circumcised believers. Well, most scholars think that this group did not represent the Jerusalem church as a whole, but it was still a very influential group of believers who were insisting on the importance of circumcision. Let me put it this way. When you study all of the conversions that occur in the book of Acts... Um, which we've seen several, and there's several more to come. But as you look at all the different conversion story in the book of Acts, scholars, people will put together these charts. They're charts that categorize the responses that you find at each conversion because each conversion is unique and different. So I've seen these little charts, and perhaps you have too. They're designed. They kind of look like little bingo cards. And uh, down one side, you have all the different conversion experiences in Acts. You have Pentecost, Samaritans, Ethiopian eunuch, Saul, Cornelius. And then across the top, you have all the different responses that you can make, uh, hear, repent, believe, confess, baptism. And then I guess, as you read through Acts, if you can find one conversion example uh, that has all all of those responses, and you can fill the whole row up, then you get conversion bingo. But the difficulty is you won't find any conversion experience in Acts that checks all of the boxes. Because each conversion experience is unique and different. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came at baptism. In Samaria, the Holy Spirit came after baptism, the laying on of hands. In Caesarea, as we just learned last week, the Holy Spirit came before baptism. Each conversion experience in Acts is different and unique. But but what what, what we do know about this group of believers in Jerusalem is that on this conversion chart, they wanted to add a row. They wanted to add circumcision. It was the one that they were making sure was checked, and there was no way that you were going to have conversion bingo unless you've been circumcised. And Peter, of all people, the leader of the apostles himself, had been hanging out and eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. This was a huge violation of custom. It was a big no-no. Well, Peter could have become very defensive with the criticism, right? That's what I tend to do. I tend to quickly go on the defense when criticized, especially in this situation. I mean, here... I mean, just think about this. Peter had been a part of this amazing work of God. And now his character is being called into question by these people who were not even there. How would you have responded in this situation? Well, Peter doesn't get defensive. He doesn't spend his time trying to defend his actions. Instead, verse 4, Luke tells us that Peter began just simply explaining everything that happened. And so that's why we hear the story again. Peter retells the conversion story of Acts 10 in his own words. And here in Acts 11... It's for the purpose of showing this group of believers in Jerusalem that he was not the one to blame for what had happened. You see, they were pointing their fingers at him. They were blaming him for this Gentile nonsense. You are the one responsible for this. You went into the house of uncircumcised men. What were you thinking? There's no way that we're going to let uncircumcised Gentiles become people of God, and so they wanted someone to blame for this mess. And if they could blame Peter and perhaps discredit his character, then they could right the ship and fix the whole situation. But in the retelling of the conversion story, Peter makes it very clear who was behind the conversion of the Gentiles. They were all pointing their fingers at him. Instead, Peter showed them how the fingerprints of God were all over the conversion story. This was not his doing. This was the work of the Holy Spirit. And this was important to point out not just for the Jewish believers who were struggling with including the uncircumcised Gentiles, but it's also important to point out for the uncircumcised Gentiles who would one day be reading Luke's account. They needed to know as well that this invitation was for real. And just as a reminder... Luke was writing this account for his friend Theophilus. You Remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1, Luke was writing all these things down for Theophilus so that he may know the certainty of these things. And most likely, Theophilus was a Gentile, was a person like Cornelius background in Roman culture, of social and government rank, Gentile. And so Luke also includes this account so that Theophilus and other Roman Gentiles who he expected to read his account, he wanted for them to be certain that the conversion of Cornelius was an act of God was a work of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just Peter's idea. And so he does, he does that in three ways, as he kind of retells this story, and I want to highlight these uh, here just quickly, how Peter shows that this was the work of the Spirit and not his idea. He was being blamed, He's being criticized for this. And he's like, "No, I'm not the one." I'm not the man, but I know the man. I'm not, I don't, don't, point the, don't point your fingers at me, but let me point the fingers at God. So he does this in three ways. First, in verse 12, he says that the Spirit told him to have no hesitation about going with them, And so he does it by the command of the Spirit. Peter says that it was the Spirit who told him to have no hesitation. Again, it wasn't his idea. He was just obeying the command of the Holy Spirit. Second, the coming of the Spirit. In verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning. As I shared last week, Peter could not even finish telling the story. Here he says, I was just getting started. When all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit chose the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit picked the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came on them just like he had come on us in the upper room at Pentecost. In verse 17, he would summarize with this great statement. He said, God gave the Gentiles the same gift that he gave the Jews. So who was I to think that I could oppose God? So the coming of the Spirit. And then third is the common bond of the Spirit. In verse 16, Peter quotes the words of Jesus from Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 as validation for what was happening to the Gentiles. Right before his ascension, Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells the apostles, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, it's it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that will be the common bond for the disciples of Jesus. The crazy thing is when Jesus speaks these words, he's only addressing the Jews. But it's Peter who remembers these words and applies them also to the Gentiles. You see, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is now the common bond. For the Jews, the common bond was circumcision. For the disciples of John, the common bond was water baptism. But for the disciples of Jesus, it will be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So through the command of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the common bond of the Holy Spirit, as Peter retells this story, it's clear to everyone the conversion of the Gentiles was not Peter's idea. Don't point your fingers at him. You can't blame him for this one. The fingerprints of God are all over it. This was truly a work of God. And then verse 18. And this is where I want us to hang out for the rest of our time together. There's this wonderful response in verse 18. Peter has showed them by just telling the story They've criticized him. They want to put put the blame for what has happened on him. They want to end this. They want to discredit him. He's retold the story. And shown how he's not the one they need to point their fingers at because the fingerprints of God are all over it. Here's their response, verse 18. When they heard this. They had no further objections. Praise God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. What a great statement. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to admit, I've been preaching this whole sermon today, just not being able to wait to get to this part. (laughs) Because this is where, man, the Lord has just had me all week with just this one statement. Oh, what a powerful statement. This is one of those that you circle, that you highlight, that you memorize, that you go back to. What a statement. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. You know, the implication is that up until this time, God had not granted the Gentiles repentance. You see, up until the conversion of Cornelius, the Jews were the only ones who'd been granted the opportunity to repent. But now, even the Gentiles have been granted this opportunity. You see, as great and significant as the Pentecost event was in Acts chapter 2, and it was such a significant event, right? It was the beginning of the church. The offer of repentance, the invitation to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That opportunity had been granted only to the Jews. But now, here in Acts chapter 10 and 11, the longest narrative in the book of Acts, what scholars have called the Gentile Pentecost, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance, Unto life, And if I may, I would like to speak on behalf of all of us Gentiles and say to God, thank you. What an opportunity we have been given. It's an opportunity of a lifetime that has now been granted even to us to you and to me. You know, as I've I've thought about about it this week, I've thought of of two different ways to illustrate something being granted to us. That word has just kind of stood out to me and I've just sort of chewed on that word. And I've thought about two different illustrations, two ways of something being granted to someone else and the first illustration is of a genie and a lamp you know a, a genie and a lamp someone will find the lamp the stories go and they'll rub it genie comes out and then the genie grants right how many three well, for some reason I don't know why it's three but generally three wishes but that illustration does not really capture what's happening here. Because even though many might think of God as some cosmic genie up in the sky, God's not some kind of cosmic genie who grants us the opportunity to repent just because we ask for it. That's not how that goes. The second illustration that I thought of this week is of a father who has been approached by one of his children with a permission slip from school. Now, every parent in the room uh, has been in this situation, right? School's going on a field trip to the zoo. And the only way the child can go on the trip as if the father grants him permission. And I like this illustration of the father better than the one of the genie. Because repentance is not something that God grants to us just because we ask for it. Let me say that again. Repentance is not something that God grants to us just because we ask for it. It's something that God grants because his son died for us. You see, the father is happy to sign the permission slip, but he signs it with the blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. What a gift. We have been granted. We have all sinned and fallen way short of the glory of God. We have all disobeyed and rebelled. We have all hurt others with our behavior. So what do we do? Well, the best apology is changed behavior. The biblical word for changed behavior is repentance. And all of us, you, me, and John Morant, all of us need to be given an opportunity to repent. in the good news of Acts chapter 11 and verse 18 is that God has granted even the Gentiles the opportunity to repent. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. Don't take for granted what God has granted to you. Let's pray. Father, as I stated earlier, we say thank you. We say thank you that you have granted even to us, even to us Gentiles. Let us not forget who we once were. You have granted even to us. Opportunity to repent. Lord, thank you. We praise you. You are such a good God. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son who has granted us that opportunity. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, I hope you heard in my message what has been offered to you. I really do mean, it's not hyperbole, it's not over-speak, it's not preacher-speak. I really do mean it's the opportunity of a lifetime that we've been granted through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to repent. To repent. So this morning, if you're here and you haven't repented, begin today. Come. Turn from your ways. Turn from the world. Turn from sin and turn to God. Put Christ on in baptism. For those of you who have done that, Repentance isn't a one-time experience. It's a lifetime. And so it's it's, it's a life of of turning continually to the one who loves us, turning to him. Let me encourage you today to just repent, to live this life of repentance. What a life it is that we've been given, that each new day we 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 can rise up And turn to the one who loves us. Let's turn to him today. And let's walk boldly in Christ today as we go out in this world. Let's stand together and sing.